Welcome to another Kingdom Community Church podcast. We hope you enjoy the message. Okay, the story of my life, which I do once every 40 years. So if you want to hear it the next time, you've got to wait another 40 years, right? Um, some of you know, some of you don't know that even though I have a very strange accent, like, can we dim that light? Is that all right? Somehow? Can we dim that? Yeah, because I'm blinded and I can't see you guys. Okay, just that one. Okay. Um, even though I've got a strange accent, I was actually born in Adelaide, which funnily enough is like, yeah, it's good. Funnily enough, it's the same place where Paul used to live. And um, one time we put in our addresses and found out that even though we have a five-year age gap, um, he actually lived on the other side of the river. So I lived in this um, suburb that was called Dernacourt. Um, surprisingly enough, lived on a street that was called Paradise. I always thought that was quite ironic. If you hear the story of my life, you'll realize why. Living in Paradise was far from the truth. Um, I grew up on that street. I knew all the people there for um, a long time. and was quite familiar with a lot of them. And um, I used to walk into people's houses, called everyone auntie and uncle, um, used to walk into the next door neighbor's house, and um, there was a lovely couple living there. Um, her name was um, Auntie Kobe, and then I had Uncle Don, and I used to walk in and like go like, ta-da! Hi, here I am, let's hang out, you know? So at three years old, I did that, because that's what I used to do. Walk into the house, I'm like, ta-da! Here I am, the three-year-old child wants to hang out with you guys. Not realizing that they were actually really busy, and they had, like, you guys probably don't even know what it is, but they had a cassette player on with a cassette in it, and they were listening to something that was a play about Lazarus. And I was like, who's that? What are you guys talking about? It sounds really intense, like Lazarus needs water? What? And then they made it really, really interesting because they said, like, ah, oh, we're not allowed to tell you. I'm like, what? You're not allowed to tell me about Lazarus? Like, what's this about? And they said, oh, no, we want to respect your parents, and your parents are new age. Like, back then, they didn't see new age. They said, um, into all sorts of other stuff. And we just want to respect them and not tell you about Lazarus. And I was like, cool, I want to know about this Lazarus now. What is that, you know? What's this secret that I want to get in on, right? So I went home, and I said to mom, like, hey, these people, they... they they believe stuff and they listen to things and, and I want to know where they're coming from. And then my mom, being a very new age person, said like, your truth, your reality, follow the destined path that you're on, you know. Like, and uh, I said, okay, cool. So I went back and I said, my mom said that I'm allowed to know everything. You know, my truth is my reality. <laughs> Tell me more. And they're like, oh, okay. Like, um, we go to a place of worship. And we believe in God. I'm like, who's that? It's like, oh, it's the one that created everything. I'm like, wow, never heard that. And I said, like, so, so what, what's the place that you guys go to? They said, oh, we sing songs and we talk about God and stuff. I said, like, oh, that sounds cool. Can I come? I'm like, yeah, you could come. Like, if you just make sure that you're next to our car, 6 o'clock Sunday morning, because these people were in leadership. That's what people do when they're in leadership, right? They're always there early. Um, you can come, and if you're not, then you can't come. I'm like, okay. They actually thought I wouldn't make it, but I was there. I was like, cool, now we're going to church. I was only three years old, guys. 
Like, and I used to wait. I was like, oh, it's time. I'm going to go, you know. And I would, like, measure it out. Like, after Sesame Street, I'd run to next door and just get in the car, right? So these people started taking me to church. And I started getting all the teaching and the crafts and kids' church and learning. And I thought, it's so cool. I love this. And I remember going to primary school and I said to people, do you believe in Jesus? You know, people in my class are like, yeah. Like, wow. And then I asked one kid, do you believe? He's like, nah. And I said, well, I'm never playing with you then, mate. It's just, it's not on. Like, I only like how people that believe in Jesus, right? So there was this radical thing, but I had no idea about evangelism. I just clearly wasn't called to evangelism, right? But there was this faith in my heart. And I'd go home, and I remember one day walking into the bathroom, opened up a cabinet, and um, I found this bottle. My mom walks in, and she says, oh, he's at it again. I'm like, what do you mean, mom? He's drinking. He's always drinking your dad. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I had no idea. I didn't even know what alcohol was. Turns out my dad drank a lot. He drank all the time. And if he wasn't drinking, he was saying stuff that was really random. And I only found out when I was 20-something that it was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenia. He was always out of his mind, always drunk, always aggressive, always scary. And I remember, like, hearing the front door and Dad would be home and I would dive, you know, dive onto my bed and just sit there and wait for Dad to leave or do something else or not realize that I was there. And I was scared out of my mind. I think you must have seen my feet sticking out of the bed, you know, just hiding under it. Always scared of dad. And there was times where he got really happy, but then he would say stuff that was really random again because, like, he just wasn't in his right mind. And um, I remember one day waking up and I said to mom, where's dad? And he said, oh, he doesn't live here anymore. And I felt such a knot in my stomach. What do you mean? He doesn't live here anymore. And she said, oh, he's, he's been taken off to an asylum. Like, he's, um, he's in a psychiatric hospital. And she said he might have even done it on purpose because he doesn't want to get the divorce papers. And I was only six and I had no idea what she was talking about. I was like, okay, it sounds really not great, but okay. And I remember shortly after that, sitting in my bedroom, and suddenly I see Dad walk past the outside window. And I said, Mom, he's walking around the house and he's got a shotgun in his hands. And then my mom called the police. Police came out to the house and then my dad said, no, 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 I was going to kill the feral cats because we've got heaps of feral cats, right? I actually reckon he was like ready to, you know, do us away. But they caught him and they took him. Anyway, he'd come back on a regular basis. He basically convinced the police that it was feral cats that he was trying to get rid of and not us. And... um, he kind of hammered on the visitation rights, so I had to go in the car. I remember one day sitting in the car with my dad, and he said, well, like, you know what you've done, and it's all, like, really desperate now. There's nothing we can do, and it's ended, and you know what we've done. And I said, like, what do you mean, Dad? What have I done? And then he said, like, well, like, you've separated your mom and I. She doesn't want me to come back, and, like, just there's nothing we can do. And he took me up to a corner in Adelaide, in the hills, that's called the Devil's Elbow. It's really ironic, right? And he said, I'm going to drive over the edge. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And, like, to this day, I still hear the sound of the gravel underneath the car and the car speeding up. So he just basically just put his foot down and the car went, like, went upright. And I thought, you know what? 
the moment the car goes over the edge, I'm in a job. Because I was only six years old. And I thought, just that right moment where the car is kind of leaning, I'm going to unbuckle and jump out of the car and make sure that I live. And I thought, I'll get gravel in my knees, but that's all right. I'll live right. So I'm sitting there, and he's planked it, and he's ready to go. And I can see, like, sweat on his face. And um, suddenly he hears the sound. And then he said, no, 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 no. No, no, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to do it. And he took his foot off. Basically changed his mind. Last minute. I was like, okay. And I was shaky because I was so terrified. And I remember sitting in the car and just holding on for dear life because I didn't know what he was going to do, you know. But he went around the corner. Like, I'm one of the people that actually went around the corner of Devil's Elbow. There's actually a lot of people that have gone over that. Like, to this day, it's a known spot. So he took me back home and he said, like, hey, don't tell anyone. Don't tell your mom. Like, really don't tell your mom because that was a mistake and I never should have said that, right? I was like, silent. We walk in the house. I've always been a really outspoken person, you know? You don't tell me to not, you know? So I came in and I said, Mom, I'm never getting in the car with my dad again. And she said, like, what happened? I said, he actually tried to drive over Devil's Elbow. Right? And last minute, he changed his mind. And she's like, oh, my gosh, are you serious? I said, I'm serious. He actually was planning to do it and he changed his mind. And um, she said, oh, okay. So I went to my room and started playing around. And suddenly the phone rings. And there's somebody on the other side of the phone, and I can hear my mom talking. And then she says, you've got to come. I'm like, okay. So I came in, and she said, you've got to talk to the police because they're saying that I'm not allowing you to see your dad. I'm like, okay. So I went on the phone, six years old, right? I don't care if you throw me in jail for the rest of my life. I'm not getting in that car with my dad because he tried to kill me. And they're like, Oh, really? Is that what your mom's telling you to say? I said, no. My mom's telling me that I need to be in the visitation right thing. And I said, I'm not doing it. You could throw me in jail. Anyway, the cop turned around and I could hear him, right? My dad was sitting behind him and the cop just went off at him. He said, you're not in your right mind. You don't deserve to like have this little girl and take her out and this and that. So he basically stopped the visitation right. And from there on, I did not have to get in the car with him anymore. And then they set up this thing that was called um, like supervised visitation where you go and sit in a little room with a whole bunch of awkward toys and a mirror and I knew somebody was sitting behind the mirror, you know, like some of you guys are nodding. And he pretended to be the good dad, which scared me even more because suddenly he was smiling and saying stuff that sounded almost normal. And it scared me because I knew that he, there was a chance that he could actually get custody. And I wanted nothing to do with him from there on. He was scary and unpredictable. And I'd sit there and pretend to enjoy myself. And he'd take pictures on a Polaroid camera. Do you know those cameras, the old ones, where the picture comes out? And then you've got it in your hand, you wave it. He'd take pictures and I'd sit there and try to, you know, enjoy myself as much as I could, but I was scared. Anyway, it got to the point that I think my mum made him sign paperwork because she told me later on that he swapped me for a bread toaster. If he could get the toaster, he gave up rights and he got it. And then she laughed and she said, like, the toaster didn't even work, which she thought was quite hilarious. But for me, it was like, this is my value. I'm not even worth a bread toaster. 
because that's what he swapped me for, right? So I was so low. Internally, I was so shattered and so broken that he'd given that up like that. Anyway, she said, it's all right, we'll be fine. She packed up our stuff, sold the house, and said, we're going to move away from here. I'm going to take you to a different country. So I remember being at the airport, seeing my auntie and my uncle, you know, Auntie Kobe, Uncle Dom, seeing my best friends. I'd lost everything, lost my house, lost my family, lost my friends, lost my school, lost my country. And suddenly I was on an airplane and I was out of the country. And my heart went to a place that I can't even describe. Like it was shattered. I had lost everything. And I became this really self-sabotaging little girl because I knew that anything that came close could actually be lost. And it meant that any time somebody tried to connect at a heart level, I'd kind of like draw them in and then push them away and became really self-destructive because I was like, I just can't cope with the loss of more. And I remember going to see my grandmother for the first time who also lived in Holland in the Netherlands. And there was a person there that pretty soon took us into the house. And I won't say exactly what, what happened, but you guys are adults, so you probably realize, right? There was some very inappropriate stuff that started to happen over a period of two years living in that house, stuff that shouldn't happen between a child and an adult. And my heart was just void of hope. And I became so resentful and so angry and so victimized that I would just, I couldn't even see straight anymore. So from the age of nine on to 12, I was just down in the pits, like out of control, had no hope. Pretty soon, I came to the point of so being so self-destructive that I went home, chucked my stuff in a bag and just walked out the front door. I was like, I'm not coming back. I want nothing to do with anyone. I don't want to connect to anyone. And the weird thing is, even with my mom, I told her later on that I actually believed that she divorced me because she divorced my dad too. And I thought, because she used to say, you're so like your dad. And I thought, well, he's not doing really well, so she'll get over me too one day, right? So I walked out the door got myself in a shelter, ended up with a bunch of friends. And the friends are like, this is cool. This is Holland, you know, let's go to a coffee shop. Now, you guys know that probably that when you go to a coffee shop, you don't get coffee. Nah. There's a menu and you can get anything you want, but there's no coffee, any type of drug. You could just order it. And it's like ordering chips, chips and sauce. Yeah, can I have that one? It's from Morocco. And then we'll pack it up and they'll give it to you. So we started sitting in coffee shops. At that time, I was only 13 years old. And I thought I was a mature adult now because I'd seen so much. Like, I was like, I'm so mature, right? Started hanging out with these kids that were much older. Back then, tattoos were still kind of a taboo, right? Nowadays, it's normalized. I have a tat. I have one on my leg. But back then, it was kind of out there. All my friends had tattoos, you know, like they had tattooed gang stuff in their mouths and had them on their fist and all sorts of stuff. And like my, my best friend had like tattoos all the way down, like a sleeve with like wolves on it and stuff. And I was hanging out with like this like gangster crowd, right? And went down the pits even more, like rolled from one relationship into the other. And sometimes I think like, man, I wish I was good. I wish that. I had some kind of hope or I wish I was like 
Auntie Kobe and Uncle Don, but obviously I can't do anything right. And I'm just doomed. Like I look at the people around me. I look at my family. I look at the decisions that I made. I've got no chance of ever making anything into anything, you know. I'm just absolutely hopeless. Just absolutely void of hope. And pretty soon, like, these friends stepped up in the drug use and started using all sorts of stuff. It went to pot to way worse. And we would leave the shelter, go out, hang out on the street. I can't believe I'm still alive, guys. Like, the trouble that I got in with, like, being chased by cars, boyfriends, aggression, violence. Like, man, I can't believe that I'm still alive. But God had me, eh? Anyway, by the time I was 13, I remember one day waking up in pretty much like a crack house. And I woke up and I went like, oh, mm, bad word. Looked right into the face of a cop. They just busted the house while I was asleep. And basically I got put in, um, what do you call it? Handcuffs. Yeah. And they took me to an isolation cell. And I sat there, which means that everything's cushioned, you know? squishy stuff in a small room sat there for 24 hours and then um I got taken before the judge and this lady like her name it's so funny in Dutch it's actually called um Ottenspoor Kausmaker which means Otter Trail Sock Maker what was her name it's just the most bizarre name I've ever heard and she was a really outspoken like quite a friendly judge and she decided that my mum was going to lose custody. So that was the second parent now because the first had lost custody when I was nine. The second lost custody when I was 13. And I got taken to what they call like a state ward, an orphanage. And um, they called it a family replacement home. Like, sounds really bad, but it was actually really good. Like some people say, oh my gosh, you got in there, like you got taken to an orphanage. But it was actually really good because there was some structure there. And there were consistent people there. And I was actually away from the mess that I'd taken myself into, you know, like the people I was hanging out with. I was actually away from that. And I started to get back in a certain amount of, um, of routine, just waking up in time. I'd still use drugs every now and then, but not as much, like not on a daily basis, 24-7, but every now and then there'd be somebody in that orphanage that would take drugs and... Um, and then I went back to high school when I was close to 15. And um, they said, oh, like I was just sitting in class one day and I was like, I'm just bored out of my mind. I can't stand this. And they said, oh, what do you mean? I said, like, I could do this stuff with my eyes closed. Like, I was so cocky. Anyway, the lecturer came in. And she said, oh, okay, just do this paperwork. And she put it down in front of me and I filled it all in. And, um, and then she said, oh, I didn't tell you that because I was in first grade high school, like first grade is, um, I feel like year nine, yeah, yeah, it'd be year nine, wouldn't it, anyway, so she said I didn't tell you that they're university papers, and I'd filled them in, and basically it meant that when she saw that I had everything correct, they, they accelerated me, so basically I only went to like one year of high school, and then went straight to my final exams, and um, they had to ask exemption. And uh, it went through before, like, before the, um, the Minister of Education. 
and they got exemption and I just accelerated to the very last exams and just went straight through that. And then I started like doing a college. And um, in the meantime, my mum, seeing how still out of control I was, because I would just go off like, hey, mum, see you on Monday, and I'd just leave and stay out all weekend and do whatever I wanted, really. And um, she said, oh, you're a free spirit, you know. Again, it's like your truth is your, you know, always been a free spirit. And she takes me out to this thing that's like an amusement park carnival thing that is really big in Holland. You don't see them here, but... Basically, when the carnival comes into town, they'll set up like it's big amusement parks, almost like Disney Wonderland. And you've got attractions and lights and, you know, like all sorts of swings and, and Ferris wheels and you name it, it's all there, right? And she asked the people of the carnival to, um, to take me in. And they said, oh, yeah, she could come and live with us. So basically, it sounds bizarre, but I started living with gypsies. And um, we travel around the country. I actually really enjoyed that. I mean, I didn't have time to use drugs anymore. I was just working all the time. Like, but still in so much trouble and always like in and out of relationships and messing stuff up and self-sabotaging. And I'd connect to somebody and then push them away again. It was just really messed up. Anyway, eventually I ended up um, dating this guy that I met in a pub. Like, still makes me laugh because I was always hanging out at pubs. Uh, there was even a stage where I actually had a green mohawk. Can you imagine that? Green mohawk. I actually had a green mohawk. Like, shaved the sides of my head, leather jacket, you know. Used to rip my T-shirts before it was a thing, you know. Like, you could blame me for that one, you know. I used to rip my leggings, you know. Like, had to have holes in them, that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm a punk rebel. <laughs> Punk rebel, anarchy, you know. Yeah. We used to listen to this band that was called The Cure, which is like a gothic kind of like, do you know The Cure? See, everyone in the 80s knows that. I used to buy all their am uh, like albums and play it all the time. Anyway, so um, I started hanging out with these gypsies and um, carnival people, circus people, like became involved with friends that were working at Du Soleil. Do you guys know Du Soleil, the circus? Yeah, Circus du Soleil. So one of the guys was actually the brother of the, the one that I was dating. And then I had a whole bunch of friends that were like really bizarre, like circus people, strange people. But we'd hang out and have a really good time. And um, one day I found that I was actually expecting. I was like, wow. I started talking to my friends. They're like, there's no way, Sheik, you're like 19. You're pregnant? What are you going to do? You can't do this. They got me so close to doing something about it. And then I said, no, but wait a minute. What if, what if this actually gives me a purpose? What if this actually fills the void and stops the destruction that I'm feeling on the inside? What if this actually becomes a motivation for doing life? And I said, I'm not going to do anything about this. I'm going to be a mum. I was only 19. Like, he's 28 now. Such a good kid, eh? Anyway, so seven months later, I spontaneously, for whatever reason, go into labor. Yeah, it is. I, I was in the wrong position. Um, had my son prematurely and moved into this little flat 
And I was really, like, it was a big change because suddenly I couldn't just leave and do whatever I wanted. I couldn't go out and hang in the pub. Couldn't go mess my life up. I had to actually be a consistent mom and I had such a sense of responsibility, eh? Like, this is my child. I remember, like, the first three days that he was born, I actually cried three days straight because I realised that I'd be looking at that face for the next 18 years with a responsibility. And because I was only, I'd only just turned 20, like two weeks into being 20 years old. And I realized that I was never going to give up on this. Like, this was it, right? But yet, at the same time, I had this weird void kind of, I thought this was going to do more on the inside, and it actually didn't. And even though I feel this sense of responsibility, I still feel so broken and shattered and beyond hope like it's like no matter what I do this could just go wrong any minute or I could even lose my child like especially the first couple of months it was touch and go because he actually lost a lot of weight being premature and there was this profound sense of loss and devastation and pain and resentment and unhealed hurts in my heart that I just didn't even know what to do with right I remember him being a year or a year and a half and one of the friends of my husband, who I knew was a Christian, right? I knew it. Yeah, I got married. After a year, I got married. He called up and he said, hey, you've got to watch television tonight because there's this chick on television. She looks just like you. I'm like, oh, that's weird. Nobody looks like me. I said, yeah, yeah, she even dresses like you with like the leather coat and all that. I'm like, really? I." And I thought, he's a Christian. He doesn't know anyone cool, but okay. <laughs> so funny. And I thought, okay, I'm just, I'm kind of intrigued now. I'm going to turn the television on. I end up turning the television on, and there was a girl that pretty much looked very normal. She didn't look like the whole missionary, you know, like with the bowl cut. She actually looked like a normal girl to me. And um, she starts sharing her story, and there's so much similarity, eh? Broken. Broken beyond words. And she's had very similar experiences. And then she says something. She says, no matter who you are or where you came from or what you've faced or what you've done, you can actually come to Jesus with everything. And I was like, I never knew that. I actually didn't know that you didn't have to be born into a Christian family or... I didn't know that you didn't need a certain degree of holiness to actually come to God. Nobody actually told me that. I was like, so that actually means that I can come to him with all my mess and just still be accepted? And she basically, it was almost like she answered on the television when I was thinking this, like, you could come with him with everything. I was like, wow, I'm in. I'm doing this. And I remember sitting in front of the television and seriously, there's a reason I never went to an altar call because I was so broken. I thought if I'd ever do something like that, I'd hysterically cry and not be able to stop, right? So I sat on my couch and I said, like, this has got to be real because if, if this is not real, I've got nothing else to hold on to. And I'm so broken that if this is real, this is just the last thing I could cope with. This had better be real because I'm giving this everything and I don't even feel to hold on to anything that I own. Because there's nothing really. I'm void and I'm broken and distraught and victimized and resentful and full of pain. And like, 
I felt murderous in my heart. Eh? There were so many people that had hurt me that I had this anger on the inside that I hadn't even let out, you know. So I said, Lord, I give you my heart, and I'm trusting that this is real. And I remember three days later going out to this friend's house, and, um, and I even laughed because I remember on the way praying, and I said, I'm the pub chick, <laughs> and I'm praying to God. And I actually believe it. I actually believe this is real and that he's hearing me. And, you know, and I still had my leather jacket. And I remember going to that friend and I said, like, and he was talking away. The moment he walked in, he was like, oh, yeah, all people need to come. And, you know, if they, if they understand where they're coming to and they give the heart to them and that. And he was rambling away. And then I said, like, I did. And he didn't even hear it at first. And then he said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, let's just backtrack. What did you just say? And I said, I actually did. And he's like, what? I said, I gave my heart to, to the Lord. He's like, what? And he said, I'm going to go call my wife. So he says, hey, come on in. Guess what? And then she came in and sat down. And he said, like, just sit. And then he said, tell her what you just said. I said, I actually gave my heart to the Lord. And she's like, what? You? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh. And the funny thing is, I didn't even feel much at first. Like, I heard people that had experience, and I didn't really. I just, I just knew it had to be real because, like, it was my last hope, and I was hanging on a thread, and so depressed, so broken, so shattered. You know, if I tried to sing a song, you know how you chew chewing gum and it gets really sore and you kind of cramp up. I was so full of emotional pain that if I tried to sing, I would cramp. Like, I couldn't even sing without, like, my jaw just locking. Like, I mean, I was a broken person, right? Anyway, he said, come to church. And I remember going to church, and I had no clothes that were appropriate. I walk into church, and the first lady, I, like, that saw me said, what, what are you going, doing here? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I actually don't know. And I just couldn't stop crying. I, it's the grace of God that I'm still here because I just kept being drawn back. Like, there was something about it. And I remember one day I went over to his house again. I was talking to him and his wife, and he said, um, oh, my neighbors, they're over there. Let's call them in because they were also like spirit-filled people. And he said, let's just pray. Like, we're going to lay hands on you, which is what we're doing for the scarf thing, Right. I'm going to lay hands on you and pray. I'm like, oh, okay, that's weird, but okay. I've never had anyone do that. So I sat down in this chair, and there was four people that sat behind me, and they all laid hands on my head, and they started praying. And one of them was saying something weird. Like, I reckon now it was tongues, but back then I didn't even realize. And, um, and suddenly I start to feel this sapping going through my neck. And I remember, like, turning, and they had nothing in their hands, but it kind of felt like... You know, like when you've got a stove lighter and there's that little, like, kind of, like, zap thing that comes out? It felt like I was being zapped by electricity. And I could feel the hand, and it went all through my body. And I realized that I was being filled by the Holy Spirit. And it was just this electrifying, filling presence that went through me. And I even said, like, what happened? I said, I don't know, but I just felt this, like, this surge of this presence that went through me, and they're like, oh, cool, sounds like you've been filled by the Holy Spirit. Anyway, I went into this head spin, 
of, you know how they say in church, just listen to the voice. You don't tell a child that's been in a paranoid schizophrenic home to listen to voices, right? I was out of my mind afraid of this stuff. Right. I remember saying, like, God, if you're real, you've got to show me, right? And then he starts using words from the dictionary that I've never even heard. And I had to go and look them up and realize that God was using a language that I didn't even know. And he was convincing me that it had nothing to do with schizophrenia. It was actually God talking to me, using words that I'd never even heard. And I was like, this has actually gone from faith to knowing because he's talking to me, right? And I can hear him and I can feel his presence. And it's no longer a, I hope that, you, you know, you better be real. It's actually a knowing in my heart that he's real. There was this certainty that he started doing in my heart. I'm going to read you guys out a Bible verse from Solomon, Song of Solomon. It's one of my favorites. It's 6 verse 10. Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? So in this verse, they're talking about the bride. And Jesus is the bridegroom, right? And they're saying that the bride is fair as the moon. Just think about it, right? If you just see the moon as it is, like you guys have probably all seen the videos where you've got the first guy that lands on the moon and he's jumping around and he plants a flag and this and that. Let's be honest, it's a big dust ball, right? There's nothing to it. It's full of craters and asteroids and it's, it's a big ball. There's nothing really fair about the moon, right? And yet, it becomes something beautiful when the light shines on it. God says that he is like the sun. When the sun shines on the moon, suddenly the moon becomes something very beautiful. And the same goes for us. Like, my life was void like a dead planet. Like the moon itself, full of craters and asteroids and dust. And, and yet, when the light started to shine on it, God created something out of that. And suddenly you've got moonlight. Suddenly you've got something beautiful. I'm going to read you out another one. Malachi 4, verse 2. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The sun of righteousness. Do you know who that is? That's Jesus. I remember one day waking up. And I heard this song in my head. Like some of you might recognize it. It goes like, da, 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 da. I'm not a singer, right? And then I'm like, here comes the sun. Da, 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 da. And then I realized the Holy Spirit's singing. I'm like, here comes the sun. Wait a minute. Here comes the sun. Here comes the son of God. Here comes the sun. And I realized that it was the Holy Spirit singing over me. Here comes the sun. It's shining, right? Shining on the inside. Guys, I got filled with something that to this day I've hardly got words for. All the stuff that I was dealing with, all the brokenness, all the unhealedness, all the resentment, all the pain, 
all the unforgiveness, it started to melt away. Didn't mean it wasn't a process, but he took the sting of life out of my heart. He took it and he started to create a life that was like void of depression where I wake up and I know here comes the sun, you know. He's in my heart. He's in my life. He started changing stuff around. He actually delivered me from smoking. Like I don't even know if I called, like, told you guys this one, but I had an angel appear to next to my bed one night, and I'd been sick for pretty much six to eight weeks. Right. Yeah, I had like a pneumonia that was spreading to the other side. And I was so sick that I knew that I wasn't going to recover because I'd been sick just two weeks before I recovered and then got sick again. And then I was sick for six weeks. GP came to my house and he said, Do you, did you go to your like yearly flower show out in this other village? And I was like, what kind of question is that? I'm so sick, you know. Can't you see that I can hardly even breathe? And I sounded like my lungs were full of like, you know, when you're old, it's like, like that. Like, I was so full and I was so sick. And I went to bed one night and I was like, Lord, I'm sick of this. Like, I'm sick of not being able to quit. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night and I looked to the side of the bed and I saw an angel standing there. And I knew that it had come to heal me. And I knew that it was going to set me free from addiction. Don't tell me how, but I knew it. Like, internally I knew that that was my chance. And I'd been smoking from 12 onwards like was never able to quit and I remember saying like I'm going to take this and I know that this is my chance and the next morning I woke up and there was this determination in my heart that I'd never had and like it got to the point that I even had a pack of cigarettes and I put it in my back pocket and I thought I'm not even tempted to touch them like I'm so set free and I realized that I'd been coping with a spirit of addiction. Like it was so much more than just cigarettes. It was the inability to moderate anything really. Chips or chocolate or any kind of normality. Like I was just not able to moderate. And, like, and I realized that that spirit of addiction had broken. I remember going to church and I said like, I've got to testify because I'm set free. Like free, right? Later on I found out that that flower show that was in a different village, right? This is how bizarre it gets. Actually had an open basin of water. And in the water, there was this disease that was called Legionella's disease or veteran's disease. And it had killed 28 people. 28 people walked past that open basin to look at all the tulips and the flowers. And as a result, they died. And I knew that the Lord had actually allowed me to stay sick and had actually saved my life by doing it. And then he healed me. And as a result, I had not lost my life. And here's where the bizarre things come from that testimony, right? Because it was in a different village. And yet, guess where they did the memorial for these 28 people? It was in my street. Right across the road, there was a memorial that was set up for 28 people that had died. And I knew it was the Holy Spirit. I was like, if I would have been well, I would have gone to that flower show. And I would have died. Right. Amazing, eh? He set me free. Right. Bible 
It's one of my favorite ones. Psalm 84, verse 11. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. He's a sun and a shield. He's the light of the world. He lights your path with a direction. He wants to speak to you all the time. Like I've gotten to know the Holy Spirit in a way that I can't even describe. He's wrecked my heart. And he's brought me to a place where I was so self-sabotaging and so destructive. And yet he brought me to a place where I trust enough to actually submit everything. Everything. Like it's all laid down. If I feel a pain, I know that the best thing to do is to actually ask him into that. You know, it's like, you know when you've got a wound and you've got a band-aid on it and you don't want anyone to touch it and yet you know that it has to come off, right? It's like I know that if I invite the Holy Spirit in, it's not going to hurt. And if it does, it means that it's going to heal up, you know? I've, I've like understood that God wants to be a part of everything, anything, all the time. And I found that he started talking to me every day, all the time, even about the smallest things. He started sharing like, Shek, I want you to wear that red skirt tonight because I'm going to preach about the fire of God. I, and I remember saying to people at church like, do you guys ever get that? And they were like, nah, he doesn't talk that specific, but he actually does. I'd go to church and the sermon would be about the fire of God. And then the next week I'd be like, Lord, what are we wearing this week? And he'd be like, Put your blue top on because we're going to be preaching about the river of life. And I'd go to church and they'd preach about the river of life. And there was this act of participation between me and the Holy Spirit where I would just lay everything down and talk to them. Yeah. You still with me? Habakkuk. Is that who said Habakkuk? In Holland you call it Habakkuk, so it's different. 3 verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Matthew 17 verse 2, and Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Revelation, this is one of my favorites. 1 verse 16. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Do you feel like you're reflecting that? Do you feel like you've actually asked him to come into that? And if you've given the heart, like your heart to the Lord, I've got another question for you. Have you actually given everything to him? And if you haven't, I want to challenge you guys today. Give him everything because he's a good father. You can trust him. Like, he's taught me what it is to be good over the last 20 years. Before that, I had no grid for it. And I've actually asked the Holy Spirit to explain what goodness means. Goodness means that he favors you and that he bestows his goodness on you at all times, that he looks at you with favor and that he's got plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. He's a good father. There's no comparison, no comparison between my earthly father and my heavenly father. 
and he's gone so, done such a turnaround that all those things that I used to not be capable of doing, letting people in, loving wholeheartedly, you know, developing relationships with people like with Paul, I can say, I love you so much. Like you're pretty much the closest person and it doesn't do any, you know, there's no self-sabotaging anymore. Like there's just this healedness of heart where I can love wholeheartedly and that's what God's done in my life, eh? Okay, so I've challenged you guys to give your heart wholeheartedly to God. There's another challenge today that I just feel that he's been on all day. It's about entering into the more of God and not putting a, a lid or a limitation on what he can do and wants to be in your life. And I want to challenge you guys, if you want impartation of that same presence that I was talking about before, or you want to go deeper, or you want to know God at a deeper level, I want you guys to come up and we're going to pray. Lay hands on you guys and help you develop that really close, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been another Kingdom Community Church podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to www.kingdomcc.com.au.